Would you please turn with me to uh, the first epistle of John, First uh, John chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 18 to 27 of First of John chapter 2. Uh, the words are also printed for you in the bulletin. If you want to read along there or if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to First John. First John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Listen carefully, because this is the holy Word of God. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our God, we pray that you would build us up in your truth so that we would deconstruct the lie and abide in you. We thank you for sending your Son and for anointing us with your Spirit. We pray that you would would fill us and, and teach us every good thing we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, just about two years ago, when my family and I moved to Seattle, we, we moved to... Uh, the neighborhood in Seattle called Ballard. Um, we, we moved to, uh, to, to a street called Market Street, which is, uh, it was just a little bit east of where the downtown area of Ballard was. A, a really cool area with shops and, and, and bars and restaurants and a, a great place to go. We were within walking distance of, of that and restaurants and, and from the water. It was a really, a really great place to, to live. We were renting a house there. But soon after we moved to this part of the city that we really enjoyed, our, uh, our neighborhood started to change. Um, uh, uh, many de- I think because of recent zoning changes, uh, developers were coming in and buying old houses, um, much like the one that we were living in, a 1940s uh, brick home. Uh, they were buying these old houses, tearing them down and putting up either uh, apartment buildings if they bought multiple lots or just town townhomes so on one lot where there used to be just one house they would put up uh, three or four townhomes and they'd you know they'd make a fortune and, and this kind of thing is still going on in that area of the city it's being transformed before our eyes but for us 
uh, we're not living there anymore, but we were living there uh, throughout this, this, this season of uh, drastic change going on around us with uh, houses just like ours being torn down on our very streets and, and the blocks surrounding us. And it, it gave us this really uneasy feeling. Uh, we, we, we felt like our, our, the, the whole world, this neighborhood that we thought was secure is being uh, unsecurely taken down around us. This section of God's Word that we just read, I think, in part, helps us to know how to live our life when the faith landscape around us feels like that, when things are being deconstructed around us. It, it helps us to know what to do. So if, if the churches that you once thought you knew, or maybe the, the, the city that you once thought you knew, or this country or the culture that you live in that you, you once thought you knew, maybe it feels like it's getting deconstructed around you and changing drastically. Maybe it, your faith or the faith of your parents, which you thought was so strong in your own heart, feels like it's like an old home in mid-deconstruction. Maybe you're uh, new to the Christian neighborhood and you're trying to figure out where to stake a claim and and grab a piece of land and put down roots, but you don't know where's a safe place because everything is coming down around you. You don't know where you'll find stability. Uh, John's audience in in this section is probably asking similar questions, uh, not just because these are perennial questions, uh, of, of faith, but also because, though we don't know the details, this section makes it clear that probably what recently happened in this church he's writing to is there was some kind of split or schism where a significant group in the church basically left the faith altogether. And this passage is John's attempt to help the remaining members make sense of what happened. And what he does in doing so, he, he makes his objection to make clear what we need in these uncertain times, where everything seems to be deconstructing in in order. Uh, So he gives us what we need in order to be immovable. And I think it's it's this, it's the the title of the sermon. Uh, we, We need to learn how to abide in the truth and deconstruct the lie. Abide in the truth and deconstruct the lie. I I want to look at that under three uh three headings this morning. First, Antichrist Second, anointing. And third, abiding. So first of all, Antichrist. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in Presbyterian churches, at least in, in my experience, we don't talk a lot about the Antichrist or Antichrists uh, before preparing this sermon. I don't think I've ever used that word in a sermon. And then I, I, I'm going to use it a lot this morning. So it's, it's kind of a, a, an interesting privilege we have to learn about the Antichrist. Uh, but but to, to get to what John is saying about the Antichrist and, and his purpose behind talking about the Antichrist, we need to connect some dots. Uh, so it might feel like we're jumping around a little bit, but stay with me. Um, because when we get to the, the real practical nugget of, 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 of what John is saying, um, it's, it, it's really important stuff. So we begin with verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 is, is where John is observing the current state of, of the spiritual climate, almost from a cosmic and historical perspective. And then in verse 19, he applies the state of the spiritual climate to the, the church that he's writing to. 
And in verse 18, John reminds the church of where we are almost on, this, on the timeline of all of history. He's saying we're in the last hour. And interestingly, he says that because the Antichrists are here. We're facing these Antichrists, whatever that means. Um, and and as, as I thought about this, and, well, and he also mentions the Antichrist who's coming, which, which may seem confusing to you. Um, to, to make sense of this, maybe this will help for some of you. Think of the church basically as, as a character in a video game. And we're making our way through uh, this level in the video game called the last hour. And so, you know, you're, you're killing the zombies, collecting the mushrooms, saving the princess, or whatever else you do in your favorite video game. Um, and the antichrists are the bad guys who are trying to get in your way. They're trying to, to, to defeat you. They're trying to kill you. They're trying to stop you from getting to where you need to be. Now, of course, we know that there are going to be bad guys because this is a video game. But also, because this is a video game, we know that at the end of the level, we're going to face the boss. The, 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 the more uh, powerful, the more extreme, the bigger, the scarier version of the bad guys that we've been facing so far. And so that's probably what, a, a way to think about maybe the, the difference between the Antichrists, the, the main bad guys, and then the boss, who's the big bad guy, the Antichrist, at the end of the level. And, 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 and listen, we don't know when we're going to, or when we have gotten to the, the big bad guy at the end, and we don't know how far away we are from that. We don't, we, we don't really know, probably until it's happening or until after it happened. But, but also, that kind of speculation is not John's purpose here. He, he's not trying to give us a clue as to how far we are until the end of the world. He's talking about the Antichrist and Antichrists because... Knowing that Antichrists are around and active today, and knowing that their activity is actually just a part of life in a fallen world before Christ returns, helps make sense of what happens when a church falls apart. And and, and there's a little bit of this where John's saying, hey, you do realize that we're in a war. Uh, Messy, heartbreaking, and unthinkable things are going to go down. And, and, and so we shouldn't be, in, in, in our surprise, we shouldn't just be surprised. But also, God has not left us unequipped to deal with these situations. Now, it kind of makes sense that there are going to be enemies from the outside attacking the church. But it's far more discouraging in situations like the one that John is speaking into and like many of the ones that we can maybe think of today where the, the attack is coming from within the spiritual community, where, where the fabric is breaking down from the inside. Uh, in, in verse 19, John is indicating that that probably happened in this church. Well, almost definitely happened. There was an antichrist doctrine in the teaching, it seems, of some of the influential people in the community And they convinced many to leave with them. And when this happens, John says, it clarifies who was the true and the legitimate believer and who was never a part of them from the beginning. Which is a sobering thought that some of us in this room even could be in this category of never being in the true community of Christ from the beginning, but that, that, that also doesn't give us permission to take out our antichrist goggles. This is not John's 
purpose, to take out our antichrist goggles and span the room and see, okay, that person is not, that person is, that's not what John is trying to say. We're not supposed to conflate our neighbors sitting next to us this morning or even our unbelieving neighbors with the antichrist. The way to be safe is not actually to defend ourselves against other individuals in the world, but it's to defend ourselves against deception. It's our hearts to defend our hearts against deception. And that is when we really get into the heart of John's teaching about the Antichrist, when we get down to verse 22 and 23. Everything he said so far, as, as we're kind of trying to piece it all together, he sort of brings it into clarity in verses 22 and 23. And so it's, it's going to be worth me reading this again to you. It's where John actually tells us who the Antichrist is. So if you want to know, here it is. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So when you think about Antichrist, whatever that word might have meant for you coming in this morning, um, it's not a, a, a really creepy creature in a horror movie. Or, um, it, 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 or anything like that. The Antichrist is anyone in real life who comes up with any creative new way to repackage the lie of all lies. Using power or influence or manipulation to, con- to try and convince you to deny the Father and the Son by denying that Jesus is the Christ. To deny the Father and the Son by denying that Jesus is the Christ. So why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a big deal? Because union with the Father through the Son, because Jesus is the Christ, is the heart of the Gospel. Being united to the Father through the Son by confessing and believing that Jesus is the Christ, that's our salvation. You see, when you believe in Jesus, you have the Father John says, you inherit a claim on God, the same one that Jesus has. You get to call him day or night and legitimately rely on his holistic care for you to believe and to know that he loves you as much as he loves his own son. And and, and the gospel is the good news of the son of God, which is meant to convince us of the father's love. To convince us of the Father's love is the inoculation to every lie, and every lie seeks to convince you otherwise. You see, how can the Father love sinful people like us as much as he says he does? His answer is that he sent a Christ, his son, Jesus the Christ. Not just any Christ, but the best possible one. So maybe that gives you a tiny idea as to how ugly the Antichrist lie is because it's designed by the enemy to take something wonderful and awe-inspiring and make it mundane or boring or maybe just wrong. The Antichrist lie, wherever it's coming from, is trying to convince you that the love of the Father is not that great for you. And it's subtle because we, we you know, we, especially in, in, in our tradition, we tend to be very theologically aware. And so we're, we're probably not consciously aware of our doctrinal misgivings on this point. But it's in the particulars of your life where it's going to come through. 
Because there's probably a part of you or lots of parts of you that find this lie compelling. Uh, there's, there's a line of reasoning out there uh, that's influencing a, an antichrist logic in you. That the Father's love is not that great. So just, just an example. Tomorrow morning you're going to get up and before you go to work, maybe before you have to get ready for the day, you're going to realize you have a few free minutes. And, and, and what might you do with that time? Maybe you'll take out your phone and scroll a little bit on Facebook or Instagram or what have you. Maybe you'll be looking for some way to find meaning and significance in the world, something interesting, something that is compelling, something that's worth your time. And, and, and even though there might be some interesting things or some things that, that catch your eye, that nothing really quite does it for you. Maybe you'll, you'll begin to think, maybe even subconsciously, maybe you'll begin to think that I have the world at my fingertips and I can't find something interesting. And if God exists, maybe that means that he's not that interesting. Maybe if God is a father, he's not that interested in me. Maybe he's too busy to hear me to pay attention to me. Maybe he's disinterested, like he's always on his phone and ignoring me. And, 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 and we begin to, to get into this state of just sort of bleh where we're not captivated by the love of God the Father. There could be plenty of other examples for this. It might be something like suffering that you're going through and you're wondering why, why is God allowing this? in my life, a, a broken relationship, or, the, or maybe the, the fact that you can't seem to uh, formulate any healthy relationships, and you wonder why God is allowing this to happen in your life. Maybe, maybe you come to church, and you wonder why you don't have a pastor yet, why God hasn't set the perfect candidate yet to be your next pastor. And you wonder why God seems to be ignoring you. And and what happens when we're like this is instead of having our minds and our hearts zeroed in on, on the fact that God has shaken the foundations of the world in Christ to redeem you and bring you to him, we're just kind of looking at him like, yeah, but... I I wish you would have done this differently, God. And no wonder the world seems destabilizing around us and destabilized. When when the most foundational reality, God's love for us in Christ as a father, we're basically ignoring. Now, that's the Antichrist lie, and it's incredibly dangerous and destructive. But again, God has not left us unequipped. The rest of this passage is actually outlining for us God's way to prove to us otherwise, to keep us inoculated from that lie. And there's two main ways that he does this. Um, First of all, I want to talk about, uh, or going into our second point, anointing. Um, I I, I want to talk about those, those two ways. Two doses, I guess you could say. Um, the, the two things that this passage will keep, will, says that will keep us 
uh, safe from the Antichrist lie that will keep us in God. That will keep the Antichrist deception of the lifeblood of your soul. It's this. It's the anointing of the Spirit and the apostolic truth. It's the work of the Spirit in, in our life and the truth that the Spirit gives us. The anointing and the truth. The, the word anointed, as uh, if you go to verse 20 uh, and 21, that's when John really gets into it. The word anointed here is, is used um, in Exodus to describe the anointing with oil that, that happens in, the, in the, uh, the various parts in the utensils of the, t- of the tabernacle and also of the priests. So it's, it's, it's giving us this picture in our minds of uh, setting apart something, making it special, making it holy for a, a special use uh, for God, for his worship. And, and so the picture here is of Jesus or, or the Father calling together a sacred celebration and putting uh, the, the Spirit uh, and pouring the Spirit on his church so that, so that we would be uh, pure and holy and able to... to to carry the precious truths, uh, the, precious truths that, the, that will ensure that the, the lies of the enemy won't touch us. In other words, we're protected by the love of the Father and therefore entrusted with the gospel of the love of the Father by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has set us apart, made us holy, and anointed us to know the gospel. To know the gospel is, is what John says. This is, this is not just an intellectual knowledge. This is a relational knowledge bringing us not just to know facts about the gospel, but to know God himself. What's really striking here is that John is confident that the church he writes to knows this gospel, knows God in this way. Uh, he, he says, you know the truth. You know it. Now, uh, it, it, it sort of reminded me a little bit when I was... Uh, at various points in my schooling career, probably from like you know junior high up until you know post uh, postgraduate studies, um, the the teacher or the professor near the end of the the class would always or the near the end of the course would always come to us uh, on on that day that that we're talking about um, the the final exam, and 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 the professor would reassure us saying, "You guys have been great students this year." or this semester, and, and, and you, you've done so well, you've worked so hard, you know your stuff, you know this material, you're going to do great. And sometimes uh, I, I would be sitting there like, well, how, how do you really know that I know this? Because I'm really not sure that I know this as well as you think that I know this. Um, uh, you know, too afraid to put up my hand and say, well, what about for those of us who didn't do any of the homework this year? And, you know, I've, I've, scanned the, uh, the study guide, but I haven't really got into any details. I'm really not sure that I know this as well as you think I do. But that's not what's happening here. Because in the example I just gave, my ability to know what I should know is based on the amount of studying that I did, uh, based on, my, on, on, on what information was added to my intellect. But here, it's not, it's not that at all. This knowledge is not conditioned on your ability to study it. It's not conditioned on anything in you, essentially. It's not something that you have to, or, yeah, it's not something that you have to study for in order to grow in. It's, it's deeper than that, but it's also a gift. It's conditioned on you being anointed by the Spirit and, and, and filled by the Spirit of Christ. And that's a guarantee elsewhere in the New Testament tells us. So John writes to us, 
Even in our instability and susceptibility to lies, to encourage us with this guarantee and remind us where our true home is. It's not just saying, it's not this subtle, uh, you know this, aka you better study better. It's saying, it's to reassure you that you know where home is. And every night you get to come home to the dinner table of the Father and in His welcome, even if you have doubts and things that you're struggling with, you just know in His presence, in His welcome, in His hospitality, in His care, you know. That is the anatomy of the heart anointed with the Spirit. Uh, I, I love the part in John chapter 6. Um, Maybe you you remember this, where a group of Jesus' followers are deserting him and he asks his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And then Peter pipes up. And, and, you know, we... If, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read your Bible for a while, you know Peter. When Peter gets it wrong, he gets it wrong. But when he gets it right, he gets it right. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Listen to this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's beautiful. And Peter's not saying, Lord, we studied. We don't have any doubts anymore. We have perfect intellectual clarity on every single word you've ever said. Far from it. But he knows. He knows that the words of Jesus are the words of eternal life. And so he and everyone like him, like us, can't possibly leave Jesus. There's an an important application here. Uh, John says that you all have this knowledge uh, he says, I, I write to you because you know the truth. He, he's writing almost as this father figure to others in the family uh, who are on the same path and in the same truth filled with the same spirit. Uh, if, if you know the, the, the book of 1 John well, just a few verses earlier, uh, you know that there's this section where he's talking to, to, to those who are at different levels of the Christian maturity um, spectrum, you, to, from children uh, all the way up to fathers and mothers in the faith. And there's this spectrum. What John is saying is that everyone on that spectrum is anointed with the Spirit. It's not as though the less mature believers, the younger believers among us here, are closer to apostasy than the mature ones. It's not like that at all. And we shouldn't look at those who are less mature and say, say, oh, you're close to leaving the faith, or you're closer at least than me. Because I know more, maybe, or I, I've, I've been going to church more. I've been a believer for longer. Uh, we, we shouldn't look at each other with that kind of suspicion. Because that's not what a family is like. If you're mature in the faith, you still need to struggle to believe the simple gospel truth. To, to root out the lie that, 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 that you are prone to believing. And actually, your example of faithfulness to do that Being consistent with the anointing that the Spirit has given you, that is going to be far more helpful for younger believers to see uh, rather than any suspicion or prideful condescension. And and if you're a younger believer, if you've only been in the faith for a while, if you're still trying to get things figured out, just know that you are just as much anointed as the most mature one among us here. Well, that leads us on to the the final point, uh, abiding. 
abiding. This is really from verses 24 to 27. Uh, abide is, is a word that is used five times in the last four verses. Uh, abide or abiding, it's one of John's favorite words, both in his gospel and in his letters. Uh, he, he's describing a quality in our life that we need in order to thrive in a deconstructing world. Uh, to abide means to stay put, to be steadfast, to, to be immovable. But it's also a way to, to have this rooted uh, lack of movement in a way that is growing and expanding uh, and flourishing, uh, growing up into maturity. Uh, in other words, to capture what we mean by abiding, uh, roadkill on the side of the road does not abide. It just rots, right? Uh, and, and, uh, the stump of a tree doesn't abide. It decomposes. John's favorite analogy, you probably remember it from John 15, his favorite analogy for abiding are healthy branches attached to a living vine. And maybe, if you like me, you have some vines in your yard, and it's amazing in the springtime and early summertime to watch them grow. Uh, the, the, the branches of the vine connected to the, to the vine, connected to the ground, uh, the, the, this, this source of life comes through. Uh, and, and the branches, they need to stay attached to the vine, that vital connection point where they get all their life from. But if they do, they grow, they flourish, they go outward. That's, that's what John is talking about here, a lively stability. John says that the words of eternal life from Jesus... This apostolic truth, they abide in you because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit allows this abiding to happen with Jesus' words. Um, now, for John to say, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, it should be plain, especially for us, but it was also very true of the people he was writing to. Uh, For for him to say that, it's not for him to literally say, let what you heard from Jesus from the beginning abide in you, because they didn't audibly hear words from Jesus. Very, very, very unlikely is it that anyone in this church he's writing to had the privilege of hearing Jesus speak. So we're coming against this interesting and um, potentially challenging truth for us, uh, that John is actually asking the people he's writing to to rely on his words as an apostle in the same way that, that, that he's, he's saying they should rely on Jesus' words. Um, they need to be utterly reliant on the trustworthiness of the words of John and Peter and Paul and Matthew and the other apostles. Because these are the ones that Christ chose for the task of disseminating the Antichrist lie, overpowering truth that he has for his church. Uh, the, the theologian, British theologian uh, and pastor John Stott says it this way, Christian theology is anchored not only to certain th- historical events culminating in the saving career of Jesus, but to the authoritative apostolic witness to and interpretation of these events. In other words, uh, we, we, we do actually practically need to believe that 12 men carried the weight of the most important truths that God had for the world for a time. And that might be hard for you to believe. 
And, and, and if that's you, um, in some ways, it's, it's understandable. It, it, it's understandable that it would be hard. That On one hand, you could believe that God sent his son into the world and that he was active 2,000 years ago. But it seems like a big leap to go from there to trusting the words of the New Testament. But if you give the Bible a hearing, if you give the Bible a hearing, an honest hearing, it will reveal itself to be the Word of God. Because that's what it does. Because of the anointing of the Spirit. Because it is the truth. And there, there is no probably mechanistic or detailed explanation I can give for how that works exactly or how that will work exactly. But I do know that that forms the stories of billions of people for 2,000 years of Christian history. That's what the Bible does. So the, the words of not just Jesus and the Father, but these men that have written the books of the New Testament are trustworthy. Let me also say this, though. That John tells the remaining believers in the church that they have no need that anyone should teach them. Do you remember that close to the end of our passage? Uh, What's that about? Well, um, it's interesting because the people that left the church especially the, the, the leaders of the anti-Christian teaching that disseminated their, their new teaching and left the church bringing others with them, probably left telling the people that stayed behind something like this. You're still not believing the apostolic teaching, are you? Those quaint and antiquated beliefs that Jesus is the Christ and that's all you need to know, you actually need to be taught some more. You need to go back to school and trust us because we have figured out the true knowledge that you need to know. We've, we've figured out an upgraded and truer understanding of the truth. That's what those leaders were probably telling them. That it's not enough just to have Christ. It's not enough to have the anointing of the Spirit. It's not enough to have the apostolic teaching. You need to have more, so trust us. And that's the claim of every cult leader ever. But it also should ring a bell for us in our cultural context, even if you haven't joined a cult. Because think about this. This is what we hear all the time. We've moved on from the Bible. It was good for a time, necessary for the cultural and societal evolution of humanity even. But it's not the last hour anymore. We've dawned on a new age of enlightenment. We don't need those old teachings anymore. We've moved on. You see, the we know more now narrative is probably one of the most popular antichrist lies out there. And the irony is that it's not new. It just gets repackaged again and again, and it's meant to dissuade you from the love of the Father for you. So all of this, as John is making it specific to the people he's writing to, I think it's a message to us to deconstruct that. Because it's a thin and fragile veil of intellectual certainty that covers over a whole bunch of spiritual restlessness and fear. It sounds sophisticated and wise to say, oh, we're just not sure about this all anymore. There's probably a lot more that we could know than what's in Scripture. But it leads you nowhere. Because essentially you have to become your own apostle, your own arbiter of truth 
Or, even worse, you trust someone else as that, who's nowhere near qualified. But this hits closer to home as well, because it's actually quite a problem in the, in the evangelical church these days as well. And, and I'm sure maybe to a slightly lesser degree or a smaller degree in, in the PCA maybe. Um, because we're, in, in Christianity these days, in, it's, you see a lot of very public and, and well-known cases. Uh, we're pretty bad at elevating platforms of individual church leaders who have extraordinary gifts but not the character to match. So much so that when their teaching or moral life departs from the apostles' teaching with false teaching or abuse of some kind, we turn a blind eye. And it's amazing how how churches can quickly become abuse cover-up machines or defensive of terrible theology to prop up a leader or a ministry. And so it's an invitation, it, it really is, for us to ask where our hearts are at. Do we truly believe that all we need is in the Scripture by the power of the Spirit pointing us to Christ and the love of the Father? Do we believe that that is what we need? Or, or why, why are we in this, in other words? Are we here to be cool? Are we here um, to, uh, to, to, to be honoring to God? Are, are, are we here for something that is um, less than a, a good biblical reason for being a part of a church, being a part of a ministry? Where are our hearts at? And, you know, abiding for us, if we're going to ask these hard questions, will probably look like deconstructing some things. Deconstructing those things that are connected to antichrist lies that are trying to get us away from the truth so that we would be closer to the Spirit, so that we would be closer to the apostolic truth, so that we would uh, allow the Spirit to work in us to destroy the lies of the evil one and glorify the Holy One more clearly. Especially, let me just say that if you've been hit hard by the abuses of Christian leaders, and, and, and if that makes you feel like deconstructing your faith seems like a compelling thing to do, let me just say, don't let a, a Christian leader's departure from the apostolic teaching lead you to depart from the apostolic teaching. That would actually be incredibly ironic and, and sad to do. Don't let someone who's left Christ make you leave Christ. The church is actually a great place to do this deconstructing and abiding thing. The, the church is a great place because as you, uh, as you sort things out and come to greater clarity, ask the important questions, grieve what has been lost, you, you, you'll find a place where, 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 where grace exists where maybe people are asking similar questions, but we are still anchored to the truth of Scripture, anointed by the Spirit and abiding in Jesus. So let, let's, let's be that kind of place. May, may Grace Presbyterian Church be that kind of place where, where every night you're coming home to the table of the Father and offering His welcome to others. Let's pray. Our God, we can't possibly claim to know everything that there is to know. We, we, can't, we can't claim that. Uh, Father, we, we, we are in such desperate need of the truth. Um, 
We are in such desperate need of renewal and, and of abiding in Christ. We thank you that, that, that you have given us your Spirit. We thank you that you have given us your Son. We thank you that you are a good, loving Father. So I pray that you would convince us that those things are true. Uh, make us that much more wary and um, understanding of, of the tactics of antichrists or the antichrist uh, or the, the enemies of our souls, Lord, so that we would be able to deconstruct the lie. And we thank you that in its place can, can thrive um, your truth, uh, which builds us up again and again. And so keep us in the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.